The following content has been provided by New St. Andrews College in Moscow, Idaho. For more information, visit us online at www.nsa.edu. I'm delighted to be here. I, I, I suspect that the reason must be because all of the other possibilities were busy at the 16th Century Studies Conference that's happening right now in Vancouver. So I'm surprised, but delighted all the same. Surprisedly delighted. Um, I've had a, had a wonderful visit here so far. Uh, it's been nice to meet many of you. Not that it was unpleasant to meet some of you, I just haven't met all of you. Uh, and, um, and you have a lovely, lovely town, lovely school, and uh, I've been having a wonderful time, so thank you for that. Um, my topic today is uh, is a Danish Lutheran theologian and humanist named Niels Hemmingsen. Uh, I should confess, I don't know how long this talk is. When I talk about Hemmingsen, I get into a sort of ecstasy, and, uh, and I lose all track of time. So when I've said enough or too much, um, you can just hurl your rotten tomatoes in my direction, or opprobrious epithets, or your copies of John Henry Newman's essay on development, the last of which I will be happy to dispose of appropriately for you. <laughs> the title, excuse me, the title of my talk is Race Publica Christiana Scola Christi, Magistrate and Magister in the Danish Reformation. Given the occasion, which is to say the commemoration of, of Reformation Day, I thought that I would take the opportunity to say something programmatic about two of the first principles of the Magisterial Reformation, to remind us where we came from, what our pedigree is, our genealogy, and to remind us of the resources we already possess in our DNA, as it were, due to that genealogy. As Paul says to the Philippians, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Lest I be misunderstood, I do not wish to compare myself to the Apostolus Gentium, but only to remark that his dictum there brings before us the fact that we are predisposed to be forgetful creatures, and we have need of exercising our collective memory. As we commemorate Reformation Day, we should press on beyond the 95 Theses, say, and see what else we can retrieve. For this afternoon's resourcement of some fundamental reformational principles, I shall avail myself of a little red figure of the 16th century, the Dane Niels Hemmingsen, on whom more in a moment. There is nothing terribly original in the bits of Hemmingson that I'm going to discuss today. Far from this being a cause for lament, however, it renders him the more serviceable for my purposes, for he provides a clear, lucid, utterly uncontroversial delineation, uncontroversial from the point of view of the reformers of the 16th century, at any rate, if not from that of many contemporary reform theologians, of two of the Reformation's key insights that were to work in tandem with one another, that is to say, of the Reformation's insight that both magistratus and magister, magistrate and teacher, words not coincidentally related to each other in Latin, had roles to play in the renewal of society and church. The former through his upholding of justice by the codification of just laws and by his own example. The latter through the teaching and modeling of the proper way to read the Bible. These two sets of duties were intended to remove darkness both within and without the church. It is perhaps not immediately evident how closely they are connected with one another. I shall say something about that in conclusion. To frame our discussion, I shall draw today on the paratext, that is the, the prefatory materials 
to the Enchiridion Theologicum, the theological handbook Hemingson first published in 1557. Before we turn to it, however, I should first say a couple of words about Hemingson himself. Uh, Niels Hemingson was born in 1513 on the island of Lolland in Denmark. Uh, the early part of his education took place uh, at Roskilde in Lund. Uh, from there, he went to Wittenberg in 1537, where he stayed with Philip Melanchthon. He returned to Denmark in 1542, where he started to teach at the University of, of Copenhagen. Uh, where he remained until 1579 when he was removed because of accusations of uh, crypto-Calvinism in his doctrine of the Lord's Supper, uh, mostly due to the agitation of German Lutherans, and I know that there are at least a few of you in the room here. Uh, so he had to leave his post at, uh, at the university, although he was given a, a fairly cushy uh, sort of pension uh, after that. Um, and he, he uh, lived on until 1600. So he was a Philippist, a follower of, of Melanchthon, uh, and he was writing in the Golden Age, what's usually, or at least sometimes, referred to as the Golden Age of Denmark. Uh, one of his close friends was the astronomer Tycho Brahe, uh, and, and the two of them were, were uh, really international superstars in their day. Uh, King James, uh, James VI, James I, uh, made it a point, for example, when he was touring Scandinavia to stop and discuss, uh, have a discussion with Hemingson on, on predestination of all things. Uh, and, and so, so this, was, uh, this was a good time in Danish intellectual life, and, and, and Denmark is, is mostly the only place where anybody pays any attention to Hemingson anymore. Although already in the, in the 16th and 17th centuries, some of his works had been translated in, into English and, and were being read uh, widely all over Europe. Uh, Hemmingson has been called the, uh, the greatest builder of systems in his, uh, in his generation. Um, but he, he wrote on a range of topics. Uh, he wrote on method. He wrote a number of biblical commentaries. Uh, he's got several sets of theses for disputation. Uh, and a number of uh, pastoral works as well. So that's just a, a, a very brief introduction to uh, who Hemmingson is. He also had a fantastic beard. So what do we find when we turn to the Enchiridion? The paratext of this elementary theology book intended to serve as an introduction to more serious and expansive theological works, and especially to Philip Melanchthon's Loki Communes, or Commonplaces, consists of two letters, one addressed to King Christian III and the other to the reader, both by Hemmingson, and of two poems in elegiac couplets, about but not by Hemmingson. The opening letter to Christian III, who had been present at the Diet of Worms in 1521, where he had heard Martin Luther speak, uh, the occasion on which Luther is famously supposed to have said, here I stand, I can do no other, though there is no evidence that he did, is a panegyric, at times obsequious in the extreme, even if not unconventionally so, but there is much that we can learn from Hemmingson's prescriptions and the sources that he uses to support them. Indeed, the letter begins precisely with a prescriptive section before Hemmingson goes on to praise King Christian. This later laudatory material can then be used in turn, as we shall see, to interpret some of the ambiguous terminology in the letter's prescriptive opening. Hemmingson begins with a reference to John Chrysostom regarding the three diseases, or pestes, that afflict human societies, anarchy, disobedience, and tyranny. It is not easy to say which one is the worst, for they all bring problems in their wake. Anarchy, for example, brings disorder and confusion, tyranny a perversion of the laws. 
The laws by themselves, one can conclude, are insufficient to counteract these diseases. Indeed, in two of the three, the laws are explicitly among the victims and are implicitly so in the third. Anarchy, tyranny, and disobedience, then, are to, to be opposed not by a particular form of government, and we know, or you know if you've ever read the bits of Cicero's Republic that survived, for example, any constitutional form can easily bear such evil offspring and become a wicked parody of just civil order. But, Hemingson says, they must be opposed by a magistrate endowed with certain gifts. It is not, in other words, a what that can remove these disorders, but only a who, and a particular kind of who at that. It must be someone characterized by three virtues, pietas, piety, sapientia, wisdom, and potentia, power. Each one of these has a classical ring to it. Aeneas was the model for pietas in the classical tradition, for instance, and the Stoic sage was regularly referred to as a sapiens, as a wise man. We ought not to assume at the outset that these terms meant the same thing to, say, a first century Roman as they did to a 16th century Christian. Take pietas again as an example. Classically, it refers to a constellation of duties toward family, country, and gods, whereas in Christian usage, it tends to be more closely res restricted to the true practice of the true faith. However, from what Hemingson has said so far, we also ought not to assume that he means something radically different. At this point, we don't know yet. That is to say, there is something of a fertile ambiguity in this section. It emerges in due course that Hemingson's understanding of these terms is inflected in a particularly Christian way, but he waits until his praise of King Christian to make this explicit, and we are not there yet. First, then, let us follow Hemingson's own exposition and see how he schematizes these virtues generically in relation to social pestilence. Hemingson treats the gift of sapientia first, which pertains especially to the making of laws. For laws are not causa sui, but emerge Athena-like from the head of a wise lawgiver. He writes, sapientia enim lege suae re publicae salutares ordina, for by wisdom the magistrate ordains salutary or healthful laws for the commonwealth. Once the laws are in place, however, or excuse me, power, potentia becomes significant. And the order is important, just laws first, power second. Because by it, the magistrate protects the laws from being disregarded by violence or perverted by sophistry. The godly prince provides a check on the caprice of those who interpret the laws. Hemingson clinches, the, clinches his point with a citation of the Greek comic poet Menander, bias paruses uden iscue nomos, where violence is present, the law has no power. He then comes to piety, pietas. In classical Rome, pietas had to do, as noted above, with one's duty to God's family and country. Interestingly, Hemingson here seems to discuss pietas much more in terms of humanitas than of divinitas, and with a juridical term. The magistrate is to provide an example of living according to the just norm, norma, of life as found in the law. That is, in the civil law, so it seems here, so that his subjects will copy the model of his life in their own lives. Power is to be servant to the justice of the laws, and the virtue of pietas places a check on power and restrains it according to the norm of justice. The one who would command must first, Hemingson says, be able to command himself and his own affections. Thus far, what Hemingson says does not sound particularly Christian. But there is more, I think, than meets the eye. I take as my first example what I cited already above, sapientia enim lege suae re publicae salutares ordinat. Above I translated, for by wisdom the magistrate ordains salutary or healthful laws. But there is another possibility, namely by wisdom the magistrate ordains saving laws or laws pertaining to salvation. Salutares will bear either meaning, and lest you fear that I'm 
trying to be too clever by half, we should remember the magisterial orientation of the adoption of the Reformation in Scandinavia. Hence the suggestiveness of the Protestants of the condition which I omitted above. By wisdom, the magistrate ordains salutary, healthful, saving laws. If ever there will seem to be a need for new laws, si quando no is legibus opus essa videbitur. For it, rem it reminds us that there was in fact need of new laws in Denmark at this time and she was in the process of getting them. We know from a number of other texts that Hemmingson was of the opinion that the magistrate was required to establish the true religion. And so we should allow, I think, this ambiguity its full force here. If that is so, we ought not to be too hasty in evacuating Pietas of any particularly Christian sense either, though superficially it does not seem to have one in the opening segment of the letter. Recall that I claimed that Hemmingson gives Pietas a juridical term. But given the way in which Danish law and civil order were being reformed, the standard according to which the magistrate must comport himself turns out to be a Christian one after all. And it is suggestive that his term norma, which I connected above to the civil law, finds its parallel in Hemmingson's later discussion of the Decalogue as a vera vivendi norma, a uh, true, true norm of living. We might remember here that Hemmingson opens the letter programmatically with a reference to John Chrysostom. I did not mention it above, but his reference there is significantly to one of Chrysostom's homilies on Romans 13, and in particular, in particular to his comments on Paul's small manifesto on government at the beginning of the chapter. Further confirmation that we should read this opening section from a Christian perspective is found in the particular ways in which Hemmingson praises King Christian in the following pages. His words, despite their extreme flattery, allow us to make some important refinements and specifications of what was said above. When he reflects again on the words of Chrysostom, writes Hemmingson, he is compelled to give thanks for Christian's reign and the current condition of the Danish Commonwealth. Though Christian excels in the qualities already sketched schematically above, Hemmingson tellingly gives great prominence to praise of the king's piety. His palace is a theater of piety, pietatis quodam theatrum, because it is filled with men who excel in learning and religion. His piety, industry, and holy care and worry, pietas tua industria sancta cura et solicitudo, guarantee Denmark's flourishing. His prudent and pious regime, prudenti ac pio regimine, shelters his subjects as with wings. His piety is celebrated among all nations, celebratur apud omnes nationes quanta sit tua pietas, together with his holy care for the laws, uh, sancta legum cura. In short, King Christian III serves precisely as the kind of exemplum Hemmingson has already extolled. Whatever the truth of this assessment, constructively we can conclude, Pietas is most important in a Christian commonwealth, one might say, because it bodies forth for imitation the wisdom given ideal form in the law and protected by restrained and non-arbitrary power. It is this rectitude that binds subjects to their prince and also significantly provides a limit, a check upon his authority. Hemmingson notes in his chapter on conscience, much later in the work, that it, that is conscience, is governed by three rules, of which the first two are nature and the law of God. One application of these rules, he says, is as follows. The second rule of conscience is the law of God, which is contained in the Decalogue, to which I also subject the laws of the magistrate, whose subjects we are, provided that they command nothing against nature or the written law of God. Uh, this will, of course, bring along with it then that whole constellation of duties mentioned above with respect to the classical construal of Pietas. The true practice of the true, true faith also involves duties to family and country under the various headings of uh, 
the Decalogue in the way the, the commandments are traditionally interpreted. So that's part one. Part two, Ad Lector. This is his, his letter to the reader. What do we find when we turn to the second letter addressed to readers of the work? We find something completely different, at least prima facie, in theme. First, I shall discuss the letter itself, and to conclude, shall venture some suggestions as to how these two letters might be brought together coherently. Like the first letter, the second begins programmatically with the citation of an authority. But this time, it is the Apostle Paul in his first letter to Timothy. Till I come, he says, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. The rest of Hemingson's remarks can be viewed without distortion as an extended gloss on this verse. For as he proceeds to set out what is requisite for a theologian, it becomes clear that by theologian he means reader of scripture. Uh, exegesis, the Anglican theologian John Webster says, is the attempt to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Without it, theology cannot even begin to discharge its office. And this is the sense one gets from Hemingson as well. Thus, most of the letter is taken up with setting out how scripture is to be read, what kind of person and what kind of practices are required to engage in this task. It is not an easy one, Hemingson is quick to note, but we must not be turned aside if we wish to drink the saving or healthful water from the founts of the Savior. De fontibus salvatoris salutarem aquam hauriamus. Salutare. Already a verbal connection with the first part, with, with the first letter on political matters. The vocation of the theologian has at least two prerequisites that must be fulfilled before he can get on with theological work proper. First, he must have a pious heart, pium pectus, another connection with the opening letter. This is the chief necessity that must be brought to the reading of Scripture. Second, he ought to be liberally educated in the arts and languages insofar as that is possible. With these things in place, he can proceed to systematic instruction in how to approach Holy Scripture. Hemingson's counsel or plan of instruction, concilium, on this score has five parts. Principia, the proper way of dividing Scripture, the right system of interpreting obscure parts, the correct method of using the testimonies of Scripture, that is, proof texting, and the way in which one should reconcile passages that seem on the surface to be uh, contradictory. So again, I mean, he assumes at the outset the unity of, of scripture and uh, assumes that theology is basically holy reading. There is much of interest throughout, but I would like to focus on the principia, the first principles that ought to undergird the reader's posture towards scripture, because they are a good reminder of some bedrock reformational ideas. Hemingson has four. There is one God. This God has given his certain word as an infallible testimony of his will. This word is contained in the writings of Moses, the prophets, and the apostles. Whatever is beyond this word is not necessary for salvation, and whatever conflicts with it, no matter who said it, is accursed. Why are these principles important? Why must students hold them to be indispensable axioms? Call them presuppositions, if you like. Corresponding to his four principia, Hemingson gives four benefits that come from using the principia. First, their usage forces us to recognize that God himself is the eternal fountain of all goods, that he is who he reveals himself to be in the word and the testimony, and that we should be zealous to please him with true worship while trusting in him. That's all the first benefit. But wait, there's more. Second, their usage will guide our affections and actions in order that we not turn away with the Gentiles and the Turks from the true method, ratione, of worshiping God. Third, it will fortify us against the treachery of the devil, who wishes us to substitute for the word of God human dreams or inventions that will turn us away from God. 
Fourth, it will give us confidence to condemn boldly anything that does not have what he calls the heavenly torch and infallible rule of the word of God going before it. Facem coelestem ac verbi dei regulam infallibilem praeuntem. In other words, his doctrine of God yields a particular doctrine of revelation, which in turn yields a particular doctrine of scripture that necessitates its perfection, clarity, and sufficiency. Good reformational commitments all. These matter because the reading of scripture is not mere mental pastime. When Hemmingson summarizes what I have just retailed, he claims that his four principles, quote, will guide our minds, tongue, and actions in order to keep us away from error. The reading of scripture affects both our beliefs and our behavior. This fact, combined with the verbal correspondences noted above, begins to help us connect the first and second letters. The final step occurs in the final section of the letter, where after his, uh, what you might call, methodological handbook that serves as preface to his theological handbook, not unlike the prolegomena to modern systematic theologies, but unlike those, concise, not theoretically overburdened, and transparent to scripture, because the goal, again, is simply the non-faddish reading of scripture. He describes more closely the organization of the theological handbook itself. The volume is, as I said in my prefatory remarks, intentionally introductory and basic. It includes none of the disputationes familiar from other works of this period. Hemmingson divides his material into four ordinates, or groups, because this is the way that God himself has divided religious doctrine, he says, a point to which I will return in a moment. The four classes or groups into which Hemmingson divides his material are, number one, the covenant of grace or the promise and spiritual reign of Christ. Number two, the common rule of regulating life, that is the law as a guide for life for the regenerate. Uh, number three, the government of the church, regimen ecclesiasticum. And fourth, political and domestic life. And so Hemmingson follows an arrangement, incidentally, that is, uh, that is quite quite different from another tra traditional way of disposing of the material, uh, which is to follow the order of the Apostles' Creed. As an aside, he remarks, interestingly, that the first class falls under the heading of the gospel and the other three under the heading of the law. If and only if the law and the gospel are being opposed to each other in the traditional, judicial, and existential way, which Hemmingson himself accepts and considers of great importance. Otherwise, when the Latin lex and the Greek nomos are used as equivalent to the Hebrew Torah, all four can be called law because the terms signify simply doctrina in general. I would like to narrow our focus to his last uh, ordo or classes, that is the, the one on political or, or, or domestic, political and domestic life, for a moment. Recall what I said above. Hemmingson claims that his division of doctrine is the divine division. It is the way God himself has distributed doctrine because it is the way that scripture operates. And theology is just reading scripture. And of scripture, God is the sole author, he says. Ipsum deum sacrae scriptura unicum autorem universam religionis doctrinam quam ipsumundo revelavit ac manifestavit in quatuor ordines digesissa manifestum est. It is clear, he says, that God himself, the unique author of sacred scripture, uh, has has summarized or distributed into four into four ranks all the doctrine of religion which he himself has revealed and manifested to the world. Mark what this means. Reflection on political and domestic matters not only has divine warrant, it is in fact required of Christians that they engage in such reflection. 
The fourth, fourth class of doctrines, which includes topics such as the magistrate, the laws, contracts, and marriage, is not a mere afterthought or appendix to Christian teaching, but forms a necessary part of it. One might contrast the way in which the issue arises in the final edition of Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, published only two years after Hemingson's Enchiridion. Calvin, at the beginning of the famous chapter on, uh, on civil government, writes, uh, having shown above that there is a twofold government in man and having fully considered the one which placed in the soul or inward man relates to eternal life, we are here called to say something of the other which pertains only to civil institutions and the external regulation of manners. For although this subject seems from its nature to be unconnected with the spiritual doctrine of faith, which I have undertaken to treat, it will appear as we proceed that I have properly connected them, nay, that I am under the necessity of doing so, especially while, on the one hand, frantic and barbarous men are furiously endeavoring to overturn the order established by God, and on the other, the flatterers of princes extolling their power without measure hesitate not to oppose it to the government of God. Unless we meet both extremes, the purity of the faith will perish. The reader gets the impression that the issue arises in rather an occasional manner for Calvin, tied closely to the pragmatic concerns of the present. He is, moreover, sensitive to the potential criticism that the treatment of this issue seems from its nature to be out of accord with what has come before, even if he thinks the connection is proper and necessary, again, especially due to pressing contemporary concerns. Hemingson betrays no sense, on the other hand, of awkwardness in broaching the topic as an integral, integral part of Christian dogmatics. One can already hear the objections to this, to the sorts of things that Hemingson says. This is theonomy. Do you really want to stone disobedient sons? And so on. But such objections equally applicable to any of the magisterial reformers, and therefore equally inapplicable to all of them, nonchalantly assume that the reformers radically misread where they were in the history of God's redemption of the world, whereas they were in fact far more nuanced in their understanding than those who had flattened such history in either direction, whether by easy time-traveling repristination of the Mosaic order or by severing temporal order from divine interest. Thinkers like Hemingson do neither. Indeed, the first thing that Hemingson says in this respect is that the form of the Mosaic commonwealth does not bind us. Re publicae mosaicae forma nos non obliget. And yet that does not free the earthly political and domestic orders from their obligation to the word of God, even if earthly arrangements are only temporary and provisional. In fact, Hemingson's claim is stronger than the concessive one I just made. For him, Christians' need for, for divine guidance is not in spite of the provisional position of earthly order in the time between Christ's first and second advents, but because of it. He writes, finally, because the gathering of the church, the coitus ecclesiae, wanders in this world as in a foreign kingdom, there is a need for it to be educated correctly about the political and domestic states from the word of God in order that it may, may not either scorn these ordinances of God or abuse them to the insults of God. The church must learn about political and domestic affairs in order that it not scorn the ordinances of God, Dei Ordinationes. Hemingson presumably thinks here especially of Romans 13, connecting this passage to his citation of Chrysostom at the beginning of the first letter. Given recent discussions and interpretations of this famous passage occurring under the rubric of two kingdoms, one might expect uh, for one might expect Hemingson here to enter a plea on behalf of secularism in the modern sense, that Christians simply should accept whatever orders exist, or whatever order exists, excuse me, that the word of God has nothing to say about piety in public, and that any supposed Christian order in public life is a thing indifferent, 
if not a thing wholly prohibited as an idolatrous eschatological mistake. And Hemingson's rigorous distinction between the law and the gospel would seem to run in the same direction, would it not? Uh, actually not, um, perhaps surprisingly to modern ears. Hemingson instead uses this distinction and the distinction between kingdoms, Christ's spiritual regnum and the alienum regnum, the alien realm uh, or foreign kingdom of the temporal world to articulate what is really the classical doctrine of the two kingdoms and its construal of the relationship between spiritual faith and external life. This is a long quotation. Next, both the very system of divine worship and the end of man seem also to demand this distinction. For the worship of God and the end of the condition of human nature are referred to the glorifying of God by true obedience. But since God is not able to be worshiped by those who are outside of the Son of God, first of all, doctrine is necessary, through which we are established as members of the Son of God and introduced into the spiritual reign of Christ. Next, because worship must be given to God and the fruit of repentance must be produced not only with all the pious in general, but also in the external gathering of the church and in the political society in which we live, it is necessary to distinguish the heads of our religion according to this diversity of estates, especially since we hold God himself to be the author of distinction, and the system of divine worship in the end of man seem to approve the same with their own votes. The distinction must be preserved because God is the author of distinction, ipsum deum distinctionis autorem habeamus. And yet the distinction is not radical separation. According to Hemmingson, the fruit of repentance must be displayed in the individual lives of the pious, in the life of the visible church, and in political society. Repentance must take corporate form in both church and commonwealth, the, the conduct of which is to be ordered according to righteousness. The distinction between law and gospel does not do away with that requirement, but rather reinforces it. It does, however, force us to reflect on how this is to be done. And with this, we can draw to a close. The two parts of this lecture might seem to sit uncomfortably together, as Hemingson's prefatory letters themselves might on a, on, a, on a first reading. What do the virtues of the pious prince have to do with a manual on how to read the Bible? But the paragraph just quoted helps to bring the two together. God demands worship in private and public life. But, Hemingson says, God is not able to be worshipped by those who are outside of the sun. Therefore, first of all, doctrine is necessary. Necessaria est primum doctrina, the subject of the second letter. Doctrine or teaching shows us what God requires. It shows us how to be pious. That piety must be displayed in public life, the subject of the first letter. By the end, then, we know that the virtues demanded of the godly magistrate in the letter to King Christian III cannot be left vague and unanalyzed. Whatever else they might be, and whatever their relation to the classical tradition, the virtues of wisdom, power, and piety must display the righteousness that God requires as stipulated in his word. But for this, teaching is necessary and primary. The principles of a pious life must be learned before they can be lived, but they must be lived in a holy ecclesiastical and political order. In this way, Hemingson believed in the teaching of pure and, and pious doctrine and its display in public life, and only in this way could the reformation of society be achieved. Thank you, and happy Reformation Day. New St. Andrews College thanks you for listening.